The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, why is Tate rejecting an archive of material relating to France's bacon 18 years after acquiring it? Plus, the extraordinary art and life of the photographer Alice Austin and Michel Majerus in Basel. Our London correspondent Martin Bailey tells us about his recent scoop that Tate is returning a thousand documents and sketches said to have come from the studio of Francis Bacon. The art newspaper broke the story that this archive material is due to be returned to Barry Jewell, a close friend of the artist who donated it to Tate in 2004. I then talked to Martin Harrison, the preeminent Bacon scholar and editor of the catalogue resume of Francis Bacon's work published in 2016, and to Sophie Pretorius, the archivist at the Francis Bacon estate, who went through the Barry Jewel archive item by item. Then I talked to Victoria Munro, the director of the Alice Austin House Museum in Staten Island, New York, about this still too little known photographer and her documentation of immigration to the United States and the lives of queer women in the 19th and early 20th centuries, which will be the subject of a forthcoming podcast. And this episode's work of the week is Vices Built, a painting by the late Luxembourg-born artist Michel Majerus. Amy Dawson is at Art Basel and talks to Giovanni Carmine, curator of the Unlimited section of the fair about the painting. Before all that, why not try a digital subscription to the art newspaper? The price for the first three months is £1, $1 or €1, depending upon where you live, and it's then £10, $10 or €10 per quarter afterwards. You get full access to the website and the app for iOS and Android, plus the e-paper archive of the newspaper and fair dailies. Go to theartnewspaper.com, click subscribe, and the promo code is TRIAL, all in capital letters. Do also subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening now. Now, as mentioned in last week's news bulletin, Tate is to deaccession, that's removed from its collection, a thousand documents and sketches said to have come from the studio of Francis Bacon. The art newspaper broke the story last week that the items are due to be returned to Barry Jewell, a friend of the artist who gave them to the Tate in 2004. At the time of the donation, the material was described as probably the Tate archive's most important acquisition ever. But last week, Tate issued a statement that the items had been researched by art historians who had raised credible doubts about the nature and quality of the material. Martin Bailey, our London correspondent, broke the story and I spoke to him all about it. Martin, to begin with, who's Barry Jewell? Well, most importantly, he was a neighbour of Francis Bacon, who lived in West London in uh, Rees Mews. And he came from Canada. He was a sort of odd job man at that time. And he helped Francis Bacon over all sorts of uh, little everyday tasks, looking after the house and things. And they got to know each other and became quite friendly. And obviously, Jewel was intrigued that he had such an important artist as a neighbour. And uh, Jewel became interested in Bacon's art. Right. And so this collection, is it right that Jewel maintains that he was given this body of material by Bacon himself? Yes, it's not entirely clear what the circumstances were, whether all the material came together or in bits. But basically, Jewell says that he was given the material by Bacon. And there's a suggestion that Bacon possibly wanted some of it destroyed. But again, that's not entirely clear. So the bottom line is, after Bacon died, um, Barry Jewell was in possession of this material, which he appears to have legally acquired. And the question was, what would happen to it? Let's talk about the material a bit more, because one of the things that is an intriguing background to all of this is, of course, that Bacon in his lifetime maintained that he didn't do sketches. He told David Sylvester this. He told all the big Bacon scholars that he didn't. The fact is he did. Is that the sort of material that is in this collection? So sketches and archival material? Yes, it's quite a mixture of material. There are a lot of cuttings from newspapers and magazines, uh, which have, you might call them scribbles. Uh, Sometimes they're sort of more than that. Uh, But they've got pencil marks, pen marks, and sometimes paint marks on them. So there were sort of annotations, if you like, which had been added to the material. And it's thought that Bacon did do this from time to time, but there's such a large volume of material that it was quite a surprise. And you're quite right, Bacon always maintained, and it was part of his mystique, if you like, that he didn't sketch. 
But after his death, it was shown that some authenticated sketches from him survived. So he did indeed sketch. And of course, curiously, there's another body of sketches that actually did come into the tape, but not from Jewel. They were at Marlborough Gallery and they were properly catalogued and shown, etc. Exactly. There were sketches that Bacon had done which emerged, which were fully authenticated and uh, which did go to the tape. This was relatively small numbers, but they're still important in showing how Bacon worked. Right. So... Once they were in Jules' possession, was it always his intention that the Tate should then have them? Well, we don't know what was in Jules' mind. Um, The fact is he donated them to the Tate in 2004. And uh, at the time, it was welcomed as a huge uh, donation to the Tate archive. It was said to be the largest donation ever to the Tate archive. And it's a large volume of material, uh, nearly a thousand pieces, And uh, at the time, there were unconfirmed reports that it might have been worth £20 million, a very substantial sum. Uh, Now, we don't know whether that's the case or not, but it was seen as a very valuable addition to the Tate archive. And the Tate put out a press release saying how wonderful it all was. Right. And at that stage, what did the Tate commit to? Because this is one of the most interesting things, isn't it? That there were some doubts about the material in advance. And it seemed to me that the early statements that the Tate was making was about looking through the material, cataloguing and and sort of um, coming up with an estimation of what it was. Yes, it was a surprise, the material. And uh, quite rightly, the Tate and other Bacon scholars said that it needed to be examined seriously. And of course, it was possible that some of the sketches were indeed from the hand of the master and others might have just been found in his studio. So it might have been a mixed bag. So when the Tate accepted it, it was described as material attributed to Bacon, not necessarily firmly by Bacon. And it was said to come from Bacon's studio, uh, which is fairly correct. So the Tate uh, was, in a sense, hedging its bets there, quite rightly. There were questions but it's taken a long time to get the answers. And um, in that original Tate press release, full disclosure, I was in the Tate press office at the time. I don't think I wrote this press release, <laughs> but I worked on this story at you the time. You probably gave it to me. I probably did. Yes. I probably did. So um, in that press release, you, could, you can see it online. It's still available online. It, Tate commits effectively to catalogue this, yeah. this collection digitally. Did it ever do that? No, it didn't. Uh, I mean, the material is available to scholars and it's still was until um, this week, right. if you asked for it, but it was not put online. It was examined, obviously, by uh, many Bacon specialists, and uh, most importantly, by the archivist uh, Pretorius from the Bacon estate. So it has been studied, and she went through the material very carefully. And then last year, she published this essay in which she argued that the material is basically not authentic. Uh, that's what has caused Tate now to decide to take action and return the material to Jewell. And I should also add that Barry Jewell himself has complained to Tate that the material has not been exhibited in recent years, as he was promised. And he was actually asking for the material to be withdrawn and returned to him. So in effect, Tate has done what he had asked for and is returning the material. Just as an aside, was there any more material in Jules' possession than the stuff he gave to the Tate? He still has more material. Uh, We don't know exactly how much, but he has significantly more material. And there was talk of that being donated to Tate. Now, with all the problems and the fact that the material he provided has not been exhibited, he has already withdrawn that offer. And it's said that he's offering the material to the Centre Pompidou in Paris. Now, we don't know whether they will be interested or not, but that's what he's offered. What does it mean for the Tate, though? Because... Apart from anything else, it's obviously in in accepting the gift in the first place. It must have had convictions at that time that it was at least worthy of inspection. A major institution like that would really have to be pretty careful about material like this, wouldn't it? Indeed. I mean, it does come as a bit of a surprise. You might have expected them in 2004 to say to Jewel, "Um, well, that's a very nice offer. We want to look at it very carefully. Can we have six months or whatever to study it? So it's a bit of a surprise that wasn't done. And I should also stress... 
it is very unusual for the Tate to deaccession material. When it comes to artworks under a parliamentary bill, they are prohibited from deaccessioning or getting rid of artworks from the collection, except in very specific circumstances. And although technically they can deaccession archives, in practice they have the same policy. So it is most unusual for them to deaccession, and that's the decision which will have certainly been made by the trustees at that high level, and it is most unusual. You mentioned the Centre Pompidou there, but because of this, it must be very difficult now for Barry Jewell to pass this on to anybody else, to make a donation to anybody else, because doesn't it just come as damaged goods? Well, it's certainly complicated. That's the question that um, Barry Jewell have to consider, and um, anyone taking it would have to consider it. I mean, I should point out that the material has been exhibited at some respectable museums, including in Dublin and elsewhere, in the past. And different institutions may have different views about it, and indeed different bacon specialists may have different views. And theoretically, another institution could accept the material as attributed to Bacon without saying it's by Bacon. So it is possible that someone else will be interested in it. And just to be clear, Barry Jewell maintains that this is entirely authentic Francis Bacon material. Yes, indeed. He's done that consistently and uh, with strong conviction, and he, he insists that the material is authentic. So we have a difference of opinion between, on the one hand, Barry Jewell, uh, who gave the material, and on the other hand, the Tate and the Bacon estate. Do you feel this could have an effect on the Tate's acquisition policies? Obviously, it's, it's some time ago, but one would imagine that if an institution has welcomed in an acquisition and then deaccessioned it. It must therefore be looking at its processes. <laughs> Would you estimate that the Tate's having a bit of a think about this? Well, I think art history shows us that attributions change. You know, museums accept or buy artworks by the big names. And um, sometimes, uh, generations later, maybe, the attribution changes. And it can go the other way. Museums can buy something with a very small name, with a minor figure, and then suddenly, um, many years later, it becomes by a famous artist. So I think institutions like the Tate would be fairly philosophical about this. I think it will have been a salutary lesson with archives that maybe they need to be studied in more detail before they're accepted. But we don't know what went on behind the scenes in 2004 and how much pressure Barry Jewell or uh, the situation was putting on Tate and whether Tate feared that it might be offered to another institution. That's just speculation. But I think the lesson is be careful. It's certainly an intriguing story, Martin. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, among the scholars to have expressed doubts about the Jewell archive are Martin Harrison, the preeminent Bacon expert who compiled the catalogue resume of the artist's work published in 2016, and Sophie Pretorius, the archivist for the Francis Bacon estate mentioned by Martin Bailey, who analysed the Barry Jewell donation in the Tate archive item by item and wrote an essay on the subject for a recent publication, Francis Bacon Shadows. I went to Seven Rees Mews in London, the location of Bacon's famously detritus-strewn studio, where he worked from 1961 until his death in 1992 to talk to them. Martin, you put together the catalogue resume of Bacon's work over a long period. At what point did Jules' material enter into your thoughts in that process? Did you consider the material for the catalogue resume? Um, Jules' material was available before the catalogue resume began. Um, which in earnest was 2006, and it was well known before that. I tried to always stress that I was the author of the catalogue resume primarily, but I had a committee, an authentication committee of five distinguished art historians who obviously became friends, one can understand. We met twice a year, and some I knew already, and their opinions were very important. So when we saw, as we did latterly, material that came from Barry Jewell, um, I had them to voice their opinions. In case of one member of my committee, he almost refused to look at it. Why are you making me look at this garbage, basically? You know, the whole question comes back to one, and it's not popular ways of looking at art anymore, but the question of authenticity. And you can be, and I could bore people with lots of pages of writing about this, we'll make an intellectual case out, and a long 
carefully reasoned argument for what that means. But in the past, great art historians, going way back, have sometimes said things, and it sounds a bit rhetorical, but it gets to the truth. Look, if it looks like a Rubens or a Caravaggio, it's probably not a Bacon. There's even a chance it's a Rubens or a Caravaggio. And the works from Barry Jewell, uh, I've often used the word, they're like juvenile parodies of Bacon. They're based on Bacon, to some extent, the imagery, uh, past which they bear no relation in their fabrication, in their materials, and in every conceivable way. We're talking a, a vast number of things, more than a thousand, I'm told. And across that material, you have drawings, you have archive material, photographs that have been sketched on, etc. To what extent are there just very obvious inconsistencies in those materials? For instance, is it right there are things like charcoal, which Bacon never used? Yes, the materials themselves are one of the key reasons why you'd immediately eliminate them or be very careful with the way you questioned and examined them. And it presupposes, therefore, that there was a whole body of work by Bacon which came ostensibly from the building we're sitting in, Seven Rees Mews, Bacon's studio, and yet, even in those terms of the actual materials, bore no relation or hardly any relation ever to the material we know came from this studio and was removed forensically and archaeologically eventually to the Hugh Lane Gallery in Dublin. The differences between that material, which we can take, and no one's ever questioned that I surely wouldn't, I was authentically Bacon's, and for material that I don't believe came from here at all. Perhaps occasionally there was some base material that came from here and was worked on by someone else. We tend to say it's easier that it was Barry Jewell himself, but we don't know that. Mm. He could have had a sister that we don't know of or a friend or anything that made them. Could be more than one person. So you are only guessing then, and, and we're trying to make this a very carefully scrutinised question of establishing real authenticity so one doesn't want to be careless about attributing things so what we may say among ourselves a lot of it not printable you asked uh, what acquaintance i had most of my members had seen material i was granted a day at the tate in i think it was 2003 because they realized my project at that time the public weren't really being allowed in to look at it because it wasn't in a form properly within its archive where it could be and you know, a day was more than enough. It's deeply depressing. And, of course, it had been shown before that at, at IMA in Dublin and at the Barbican Art Gallery here in London. And I'd seen that. That was just the selection that was displayed. And you sort of looked at it in disbelief, as most people did. And, you know, the people that were prepared to entertain it, you might wonder what their motives were for this. And they're perhaps people who actually can't tell a Francis Bacon from a Lucian Freud and you'd want to test their ability to do that uh, and know what criteria they applied in making this comparative assessment to see whether their view is worth listening to. So what was your reaction then when the Tate acquired the material for its archive? Well, people have shown me emails that prove I was sort of around, but I was very much on the edge. I wasn't then being sponsored as I was to write my first book about Bacon or around Bacon called In Camera by the Bacon estate, and I was no part of that process. I knew the main protagonists, and I was been proved to me. I was at a meeting in London where David Sylvester was present, and there was a lot of material on show. I didn't live in London then. I came down for the day. I remember seeing it on tables and just being, well, bemused would be a polite word. What is all this? And it was so disparate. I, I guess you referred yourself to worked over photographs, actual works on paper and so on, um, so many different things and all looking like some wild fantasy around Bacon and had not yet begun the catalogue resume. Um, and so if you're going to grandly call yourself a Bacon expert, I'd have to be careful about saying it then. But I kind of knew what a Bacon looked like and it was nothing like this. You know, it's, And someone from the Tate was there. I think David Meller, who was then professor at Sussex, and some of these people knew Jewel, as I did. And the fact he's a very affable chap, which he was, and charmed people sometimes, complicated it slightly, because they, he came across so well. And he often goes around with pictures of himself and Francis, because no one's denying he knew Francis. I tried to persuade him and put a lot of effort into it to do a book. I said, tell the truth about you and Bacon. 
because especially in the last five or six years of Francis's life, um, John Edwards wasn't around much, and Barry was a valued helper. Yes, mm. electrician, driver a lot, odd jobs. Bacon needed people like that because he was on his own. And he mm. was very much on his own, Bacon. And it's jolly useful to have someone nearby to perform those functions. So he was generally useful to him, quite genuinely. And the thing that interested me as an art historian, he was almost uniquely given access to take snapshots around the studio. So Barry would send me photographs of authentic Bacon paintings in the studio here in Rees Mews, half finished. Imagine what a value that is, because we only know the finished painting. He showed canvases begun with a rough sketch of an idea, which don't exist, so Bacon, obviously, the next day, whatever, scrapped it. These are invaluable. I said, Barry, tell the true stories and show your pictures, which they're not great quality technically, but really valuable historically. And I, I put him in touch with the publisher, but... And we're now joined by Sophie Pretorius, who wrote an essay in the book Francis Bacon's Shadows, which went through the dual material in detail. Sophie, can you say something about your methodology for doing that? So you were looking at each individual item of this archive? So, yes, I was asked by the estate to go into Tate and establish the authenticity of each item individually. Because uh, most of the discussion of this work, it's always been, well, the base material's real, the marks on top are questionable. And no one's ever really analysed if that first statement is true, the base material is real. It just looks a bit like stuff Bacon had. And so I went in very open-minded and for the better part of a year, every day went through each and every item and slowly went insane because as, as Martin said, it's so obvious, it's not Bacon. And if you have eyeballs, it's true. Like, there's no denying it. And just how early in the process were you thinking like that? I, I mean, literally I'd say, sort of first day yeah, type stuff. Yeah, especially because when you go into the Tate and ask to see this archive, you get shown the X album first. And the X album is a once bound, and now unbound photography album that's been painted on with finished drawings, sort of presentation drawings. We can get into the nature of drawing and Bacon maybe a bit later, but he definitely didn't make presentation drawings. But these get shown to you, and they're probably the worst things in the whole archive. They're really bad, very juvenile. They have giant, as we're looking at here, giant penises drawn like on a boy's lavatory wall, really ridiculous, um, outrageous men dressed as sailors and things. And you look at them, and I mean, I obviously admire Bacon a great deal, and you think, oh... Poor Francis, that's what you think. Um, And so, yes, very early on in the process, I thought this, but connoisseurship of that sort, Morellian analysis, is very much dead in art history. And there are reasons behind that. They're not good reasons, but there are reasons. And so scientific fact, that's what you need to establish. And so I was going through trawling, trawling, trying to find something that was undeniable. And I did. Six months in, I found a clipping from 1995. Bacon is dead by 95. And this is what's so confusing about the journalistic reaction to this essay, my essay, is there are points like that, and chronology is another one of these things that just gets swept under the table. Francis cannot paint if he's dead. Journalists, when they asked us for a comment, we sent them a PDF of my essay. It's as in-depth as we can possibly get. And they picked up the charcoal comment, which you repeated to Martin earlier. Now, that is a point I make in the essay, but it's point 150 of 300. And it's true that he didn't work in charcoal ever, and there's no charcoal in his studio, and there's lots of charcoal in the Barry Jewell archive. But the strongest points in my essay are the <laughs> bacon comp paint when he's dead and various other large uh, lacunae in the author of the Barry Jewell materials working practice. But I guess it's not very sexy to say something that completely damns it. It has to be, will it, won't it, Mm. Um, could it be? So I I trawled through and I would say, as Martin said, because Barry did know Bacon, there are some things that are real. There are photographs in there. There's a receipt from when they went to Babendum. But you can sort of count the items on two hands. And the Tate did a show in 2019 of material from the Barry Jewell archive and they very cleverly included nothing with a single mark on it no paint no watercolor no charcoal it was only the detritus of their friendship of which Barry has kept most so the stuff in the Tate is minuscule and you didn't ask me the question but if 
the stuff that was in that show can be considered genuine and as much as they're photographs of them together, genuine photographs. But the end of my research over that period, the conclusion was none of the marks on it could be by Bacon. And if you're going to talk about material, the main point against it is none of them are in oil Mm. and Bacon painted in oils. And there's not even drips of oil paint on any of it. And if and, you look at the studio yeah, yeah. photographs of Rhys Muse, there's just oil yeah. everywhere, right? And oil obviously leaves a halo on paper. And so it's so easy to tell when it's oil and not watercolour. Also, watercolour everywhere in there. Bacon didn't own a tube of watercolour. So you have to think that Bacon had a separate studio. He kept all this stuff in, if it's real, to work exclusively in charcoal and watercolour and kept it all separate and then gave it to Barry. Um, and the mental gymnastics you have to do in order to justify it. Because I, in the spirit of open inquiry, I was trying very hard to think, am I biased? I've been asked by the estate. Obviously, there's a history there. If it was real, I would have said it was. Hmm. And unfortunately, it isn't. And, and just to be clear, the idea of the base materials, mm. you talked about counting on two hands. Mm. So there's nothing that has inauthentic marks, in your view, on a base material that is real. There's one item, which is a bacon catalogue, that has the evidence of bacon fumbling the edges. I mean, it's likely that it was Bacon's, and that has some watercolour drawings over the painting. So there's been figures added to a painting, mm. a reproduction of one of Bacon's paintings in this catalogue. So there's one out of a thousand. <laughs> Bacon was very generous with his possessions, um, and so there's lots of books in there that are inscribed to Bacon from famous people. Peter Beard, for instance, there's a there's a Dear Francis, here's my latest catalogue, Love Peter. That's there. So that obviously was Francis's at one point. Mm. And then Barry got it. And mm. then there's marks in that. But it was likely that Bacon already had a copy of that catalogue, and so off it goes. And mm. so in that sense, there's, again, maybe you can count on one hand the number of items that have a significant paper trail back here and then have marks that are obviously not in Bacon's hand on them. And another thing that people don't remember about the whole process, because it's so boring, (laughs) is that from the very beginning, from day one of looking at this material, people said it was bad quality. David Meller said that in his Emma catalogue, and that it was clear it was by more than one person. Even its supporters from the get-go wouldn't say it was all by Bacon. And if they did say it was by Bacon, they said it was very poor quality Bacon. It's very worrying when a collection can't even have one supporter that says it's all real. You end up having to come up with these ridiculous, and then this happened and this happened. And Peter Lacey, one of his lovers, was brought in as a possible author. Uh, I mean, he's dead before most of the stuff was printed, so that's impossible. But it was a very unsexy process, digging it all up. And I think I'm very glad we've got the result we have, because as an estate... A lot of what we do is of, I think, huge value, but it's not provable how valuable it is. But getting something that is not a Francis Bacon out of our national collection, the collection he donated his work to, so he clearly thought a great deal about is capital G good, in my opinion. (laughs) And I, I think it's something that he would be pleased we were doing. Right. Can I ask you about, liaison with the Tate about all this so you've done all this work Mm. you did it as you say for the Francis Bacon estate yes what correspondence did you have with the Tate in that process the Tate were very very helpful when they accepted the items in 2004 they even in their publicity statement about it they said this material is going to be studied and made available online neither of those things happened and I was the first person to look at each piece methodically uh, they First made it, person ever to have done that? Yes, every every single piece. Marcel Fink did a very good piece about it in 2000, which was basically ignored, but that was a, of a much smaller section. I mean, I think the Tate implicitly knew. That's even unkind of me. They knew. They're smart people. In 2008, when the Big Bacon Show happened, the centenary, they didn't include any of the Barry stuff, and so they knew. So they had made everything available, and... They were very encouraging. They, as a big institution, and it being a part of a public collection, they obviously have to be careful. And I 
very much respected their going through due process with it. And it's very unusual, as Martin points out, that something leaves a public collection. Mm. And so you have to be surer than sure that you're making the right decision. But the stuff was accepted with a proviso, and the proviso was never fulfilled. And so it left it in sort of art historical limbo, this collection. And I'm glad that someone did it. It's great that it's me, but it, it could have been anyone. And I don't think it's anything to do with my talent as an art historian. I think literally any art historian looking at it would have come to the same conclusion. But it was just hard work, just sloggy, horrible, repetitive work, which means that you can come forward with the data. And that's what people listen to. And that's what persuaded the Tate's lawyers and our lawyers to even let me publish that. I'm not saying anything about him as a person or who did it. It's just that it wasn't bacon, and that's the end of it. Well, Martin and Sophie, thank you so much for telling us about this today. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. And just to reiterate that Barry Jewell has consistently and robustly defended the authenticity of the material in the archive. So far, he's not issued a statement to the art newspaper on the Tate's decision, but we will, of course, update you should he do so. You can read Sophie Pretorius's essay, Work on the Barry Jewell Archive, in the book Francis Bacon's Shadows, published by the estate of Francis Bacon and Thames and Hudson. Coming up, we hear about Alice Austin on Staten Island, New York, and Michelle Majerus at Art Basel. But first, here's this week's news bulletin. And we begin in Basel with the news that in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a number of the besieged nation's galleries have turned to art fairs as a lifeline to keep sales happening and a platform for their artists at a time when they need it most. At Lister, an art fair focusing on young galleries and emerging artists that runs alongside Art Basel, two Kiev galleries, neither of which have shown at the fair before, have been specially invited by the fair's organisers to present works. One of them is The Naked Room, co-founded in 2018 by Maria Lanko, who also co-curated the Ukraine pavilion at this year's Venice Biennale. Lanco explains that the gallery unsuccessfully applied to Lister two years ago, but in April they were contacted by the fair's organisers and invited as guests. The gallery will not pay a stand fee. She adds that the gallery is now switched to a pop-up model, transferring its programme to art fairs, and it's also been invited to exhibit at Vienna Contemporary in September. George Osborne, the chairman of the British Museum, has said that there is a deal to be done over sharing the Parthenon marbles with Greece, fueling the long-standing debate over the reunification of the 5th century BC works that have been housed at the museum in London since the early 19th century. In an interview on the LBC radio station on Tuesday, Osborne said that a deal is to be done where we can tell both stories in Athens and in London if we both approach this without a load of preconditions, without a load of red lines. He suggested it might be possible for the marbles to be lent to Greece, though stressed he was not talking for all of the trustees of the museum. Around 45 artists were arrested in the town of Concepcion in Tarlac province in the Philippines last week after joining local farmers and peasants undertaking land cultivating activity in the area. More than 90 individuals were initially arrested without warrants and detained by local police on the 9th of June. The multimedia artist Chian Dayrit, whose work's been shown in biennials including Berlin, Sydney and Guangzhou, spent three nights in detention. His work has long centred on agrarian justice, indigenous rights and environmental destruction in the Philippines. You can hear more about the Philippines in our podcast, published on the 27th of May. And you can read more about all these stories on the website and the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. As the 20th, 21st century art season returns to Christie's, discover masterworks by modern and contemporary icons that celebrate the cultural dialogue between London and Paris. Leading the sale are remarkable works by Marc Chagall, Claude Monet, Yves Klein, Hans Hartung, Henry Moore, Pierre Soulage and more. Alongside this, Jeff Koon's Balloon Monkey will be presented by Victor and Olena Pinchuk to raise vital funds for humanitarian aid for Ukraine. Headline auctions will launch on the 28th of June in London with Marc Chagall, Colour of Life, works formerly from the artist's estate, followed by the 20th 21st century London evening sale before relaying to Paris to conclude with the 20th 21st century Paris evening sale. The sale series continues into the first week of July with more exciting sales presented across the two cities. Discover more on Christie's.com. Welcome back. 
Now, Alice Austin was a prolific photographer in the late 19th and early 20th centuries who remains underappreciated. Though she's celebrated in the Alice Austin House Museum, a New York City and national landmark and a national site of LGBTQ history set in the Dutch colonial farmhouse that was Austin's home on Staten Island, the director of the museum, Victoria Munro, says that Austin is still super under-researched. But that's all changing with a new podcast called My Dear Alice due to be broadcast by the museum this autumn. The podcast is based on the work of the scholar Pamela Banos, known for her celebrated research into another great historic photographer, Vivian Meyer, and will shed light on Austin's social interactions, her photographic ambitions and her queer identity. I spoke to Victoria Munro about Austin's life and work. Victoria, I wanted to begin by just asking the basic biographical details. Who was Alice Austin? Alice Austin was a Victorian woman. She was born in 1866 and lived until 1952. She was born into uh, relatively comfortable wealth. And um, at the very beginning of her life, her father, when she was absolutely tiny, perhaps under three months old, abandoned her mother, which meant that her mother then moved back into the family home which is located on the waterfront of Staten Island's North Shore, where she would spend the majority of her life. And that home is now the Alice Austin House Museum. And she had very early access to photography, is that right? She did. So Alice moves back into the family home and she's the only child surrounded by adults. So the members in her family are her Aunt Min and Uncle Oswald, who was a a ship's captain, And they would bring back many, many things from their travels. um, And that included a camera, which she was gifted at age 10. Now, her uncle Peter also lived in the house and he was a chemist and was very interested in the chemistry of photography. She also had her grandfather and grandmother living there with her and three Irish maids and, of course, her mother. So she was surrounded by these adults, and I really think that that's quite key to understanding her ability to uh, engage in so many activities that perhaps, you know, we wouldn't be typical for a young Victorian woman. And tell me a bit more about that milieu. Were they sort of very learned, well-read people around her? Yes, they were. I, I think, you know, in general, they sort of typified Victorians of a relatively upper middle class. They were collectors of objects. They were world travellers. They were incredibly involved and interested in gardening and plant species and uh, scientific things and inventions as well, which that sort of love and fascination of all things was really passed on to Austin, uh, who was also a a very, very well-travelled woman. And did she begin photography in the most sort of traditional sense in, you know, taking photographs of people? Because, of course, lots of photography in, in that time was used in fairly straight photographic portraits, wasn't it? It wasn't exactly traditional in that Austin wasn't introduced to photography in a studio environment. You know, at this time, photography that was encouraged for a woman to take up as a hobby um, was mostly all carried out within a a studio environment. When I say studio, that's posing people for photographs in a lighted room. It's very staged. Austin was photographing her outdoor environment. She was photographing her family members, the Irish maids, but in much more non-traditional settings. And that's kind of what sets her apart from other female photographers at the time. She really becomes one of the first female photographers to work outside of the studio in New York and more broadly the United States. And of course, the idea of stepping out of the studio with a camera in those days is not at all the same as we think of it now, is it? I mean, it's an extraordinarily cumbersome thing to carry around, but she did it. She did, and she was extraordinarily highly skilled by the age of 18. And she worked with multiple cameras at any given time. You know, we were really interested in seeing if there was a specific timeline with her cameras. Of course, there are more modern additions to her collection of cameras, but she was experimenting with tying cameras to trees, using multiple tripods. You know, she was really experimental with 
capturing her images and um, it's really, as you say, it's a cumbersome art. Austin would transport up to 50 pounds of photographic equipment on her bicycle and take that equipment into New York City and would win the trust of immigrants at work to have them pose for her because that's the other thing we have to think about timing here. So some of these exposures are quite long and people would have to stand for some time. Plus Austin's setup would have been really, really long. And I often think that her partner of 56 years, Gertrude Tate, might have gotten quite tired (laughs) of her photographic obsession. You know, if you're traveling and Austin decides to take a photograph at a certain point, you might be there for at least half an hour or more just for her to set up and and capture the shot. In fact, there's a lovely picture on your website, isn't there, of Alice sort of on this pole taking a photograph and, and Gertrude sort of standing behind her, sort of observing as another photographer takes an image of them. So it's a really telling image that, isn't it? Yes, I think that it's almost like Gertrude Tate is sharing a joke with the photographer, like, look at what Alice is doing now, you know. And when we talk about these sort of expectations for Victorian women, even showing an ankle was, you know, highly irregular. And Austin's perched on this fence post photographing a motor car rally, uh, showing her ankles. And as I said, she was so interested in new inventions. The car was very new. She was the first woman on Staten Island to own her own car, and she knew how to fix it. That's amazing. Let's talk about the relationship with Gertrude. As you say, it's a lifelong partnership. You talked about sort of expectations of women in that time. What was it like for a woman in that time to have a same-sex relationship? Well, you know, it's interesting to look at it over the journey of Alice's life, really, because in some ways she was afforded more freedoms during the Victorian area than really when she's moving into the 19th century and then right through to the 1950s where homosexuality was outlawed. For women, it wasn't really expected that they even had any sort of sexual nature or inclination. So there wasn't suspicion cast over close relationships with women. Women being very close friends was encouraged, even romantic friendship was often thought of as good practice for marriage you know so in a way often people expect that it was more restrictive but in fact I think it afforded Austin some more freedom and we have to remember that she was a relatively wealthy white woman so that plays a large role into some of the freedoms that she was afforded but I think it's really interesting she's such an interesting character because she really carved out safe spaces for her friends, her lesbian friends. And and this is something that is really inspiring to us today. Uh, She was the founding member of the Staten Island Garden Club. Of course, gardening was an activity that women could engage in unchaperoned by men. Uh, She was the founding member of the Staten Island Bicycle Club with her friend Maria Ward, who wrote Bicycling for Ladies in 1896. Also a new activity that afforded women independence from men, but also afforded changes in costume. So less restrictive dress, all of these kind of things. And so, you know, she's really, like I say, creating these sort of safe spaces for her and and her social circle of friends. And was she able within those safe spaces to depict intimate relationships between women? She was. The collection of photographs that we have and that are in also other archives that are more of this nature, you know, they would, of course, been uh, intended by Austin for personal circulation. And we're just so fortunate to have some of these really wonderful examples of her and her friends cross-dressing in bed together, really storytelling with the photographs. And because the technical proficiency is so high and they're really marked by Austin's very particular style, they're just such wonderful examples of these kind of photographs. Another strand of her photography, which it seems to me is tremendously important, is the very large body of work that she made at quarantine stations. Can you say something about that? Because this is an extraordinary moment in terms of immigration to the US. Yes, so... 
As I mentioned earlier, Austin's home is located on the waterfront of the North Shore of Staten Island. Now, it actually sits at the mouth of the New York Harbour, the New York Narrows. So it was an unprecedented time of immigration for New York City, and all of those boats sailed past the Ellis Austin house. So Austin witnessed these boats entering the harbour, and the house is actually located very close to the Coast Guard station. So in the 1890s, Austin was formally employed by a Dr. Dotty of the Coast Guard to document the environment and the people on the quarantine stations at Hoffman and Swinburne Island. Most people know that Ellis Island was a place for processing, but the quarantine station on Hoffman and Swinburne Island was very significant. We have records of her payment for her photographs. And what we know is that she continued to go back and visit the islands, like I say, taking a huge amount of photographic equipment with her by boat, and continued to do this for 10 years and had her photographs exhibited at the Buffalo's World's Fair in 1901. Sanitation was a new technology, so she was photographing huge sanitation chambers and how the facilities were built to be completely hosed down. The photographs are actually really moving. And I think that in our recent history of coming through a pandemic and such, and also immigration crises all over the world are really poignant today. And in terms of how she acquired the sort of trust of the migrants to the US that you, you spoke about, do we have any evidence of, of her engagement with them other than the photographic evidence, if you like? You know, we don't. And so we have to sort of build a picture of Alice because we don't also have her voice aside from her jottings, which are very exacting on all of her glass plate negative sleeves and her journals, which are all about the photography, you know. So we build a larger picture of Alice by looking at our letter collection, which is all of the communication of her friends to Alice. We look at her professional engagements You know, I think it has to be said that Austin's not nearly as well known as she should be. And there's reasons for that. One being that she had been historically closeted by even our museum and various archives. Also, it had been assumed that Alice Austin was not a professional photographer, which I absolutely dispute when someone is taking paid assignments they're self-publishing books, they're selling their work, and we have documentation of all of these things argue that Austin was very definitely a professional photographer, even though her career and work became less so focused, um, particularly after Gertrude Tate really moved into her life, which is also very, very interesting too. Yeah. Do you have any explanation for that? Her and Gertrude spark up a relationship. As you say, it's a lifelong friendship, but most of the photography precedes that. Is that right? Oh, well, Alice, when she meets Gertrude, she's on fire. You know, she's traveling everywhere, photographing. uh, She's taking professional assignments. And this continues quite far into the relationship with Gertrude Tate. Austin and Tate would meet in 1897, but Tate did not move into the Alice Austin house until 1917. So they were, you know, a very well-established couple 20 years into their relationship by the time that happened. And I think at that point, the photographs become a lot more domestic, a lot of very sweet, candid photographs of Gertrude Tate playing with cats and things like that. But she's still taking really high-level photographs on their travels. And Perhaps the level of sort of professional engagement isn't so much there, but certainly there's no waning in her sort of documenting her life and things like that. Tell us about the legacy then, because the end of her life is is extraordinarily tragic, actually. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so Austin loses her wealth in the stock market crash of 29, and she begins selling her objects and possessions which are so dear to her to continue to support her and Tate living in the house which is known as Clear Comfort and 
they struggle along for the next 15 years and perhaps also didn't realize the gravity of the situation because they automatically remortgaged the house and then went on a big tour of Europe. So (laughs) these two women were not, I think, able to recognize what lay ahead for them in terms of the financial peril. Austin tries all different pursuits to support them and Gertrude Tate, of course, is trying to teach dance classes. They run a tea room from Clear Comfort. They have wonderful recipes. It's even reviewed. They really do try but are unsuccessful and eventually are actually evicted in 1945 from the house, at which time Austin does a terrible deal with uh, an antiques collector and basically doesn't realize she sold everything in the house for $500. So she's madly scrambling to hide things in her clothes to keep them. Her and Gertrude were great supporters of the Staten Island Historical Society. So she calls the head person there and makes sure that he comes and gets her glass plate negatives. She really recognizes that these are an important historical document. And so that's how the larger collection of the glass plate negatives ends up being housed at what we now know as historic Richmond town. Austin and Tate then manage to take a small apartment quite nearby but can't manage to carry on. At this stage, they're both elderly women and Austin is quite crippled with arthritis. So it's a very difficult situation for them. Gertrude Tate's family agrees that Gertrude can move back with them in Brooklyn but calls the relationship between Austin and Tate a wrong kind of devotion. So they're really acknowledging that it is a love situation And Austin signs a note saying she has less than $20 to her name and ends up in the Staten Island poorhouse. Just incredibly tragic. This fantastic life crumbled into an existence of a bed and a bare light bulb. It's it's awful. And are they able to maintain any kind of contact at that point? They are. So Gertrude makes the really quite arduous journey from Brooklyn all the way into Staten Island to what is known as the Staten Island Farm Colony where Gertrude was and does that every week and it's not until Austin's glass plates uncovered languishing in a basement at Richmond Town by a man called Oliver Jensen. Jensen was writing a book called The Revolt of the American Woman and he was searching across America for you know, documentation of women through various eras. And so he became aware of the glass plates. He printed some of the photographs and he brought them to a board meeting at Richmond Town. And he said, wouldn't it be incredible if Alice Austin was alive today? And they said, she is. She's in the Staten Island poorhouse. And so then Jensen went on a bit of a crusade to win Alice's trust He was able to sell um, her photographs to magazines and raise enough money to put her in an adequate nursing home. And he brought Austin back to her house to see it one more time with Gertrude. And they created Alice Austin Day. But those photographs of that day are so painful to look at. The house is in complete disrepair. Austin looks very distressed. Just really, really sad. But it is on a brighter note that at least she was put in a a better care facility and she saw her work published, which was really significant for her. And she passed away the following year. And on an even brighter note, now you are the director of the museum, which honours her. And it is a now thriving institution and her reputation through you is growing. So tell us more about that. Yes, so it's been nearly five years that I've been in the role of executive director of the Alice Austin House. And really, my mission when I started this job was to really center the narrative of Austin and Gertrude's relationship and also uh, Austin's relationships prior to Gertrude. She did have female lovers, you know, and really look at that and shine a light on that in terms of understanding Austin's work, really understanding Austin as a professional and trying to heal the wounds as well for the LGBTQ community who have long recognized Austin as an important figure. 
And, you know, we've just made such great strides. We've renovated every public gallery at the museum to really explore all the themes in her work, which there are many. And I have to say that visiting the Alice Austin house, as I did on my first time setting foot in there, I only spent about 10 minutes there. I walked out, I didn't know Austin was a photographer, and I did not know that she was a lesbian. Now, as a lesbian artist who has incredibly strong interest in photography and also make my own photographs, you know, this would have been a revelation. It would have been so meaningful. And What's so wonderful now is we have people come back to the museum that had visited many years ago, and it can be quite an emotional experience for them, you know, that they get to see all of these photographs. They really get to understand the love story that is there at the house. And we also have an incredible park that we're located in. So it's really my job now to look at interpretation of the outdoor space. It should not be expected that people need to step into the museum to experience this history and have a a really meaningful connection to the site. And so the last two years I've been working on planning around ways in which to enrich the outdoor experience. And obviously the outdoors have become really important to us. Mm. But moreover... Austin used this house, it was her muse, it was her studio, and she used the grounds as an outdoor studio for so many of the really famous photographs that we know today. Lastly, you're doing a podcast. It's an intriguing podcast because you can't necessarily have Alice's own voice in there in terms of what she writes, because it's all about letters. But is it right there are no surviving letters from her? There's just lots of letters to her. I mean, we have letters from Austin that are related to things like the financial difficulties, trying to save her house, um, that kind of thing. But we have not yet uncovered a personal trove of letters because, of course, they would have been residing with her friends. And many of her friends didn't have children and families that survived them because they didn't live traditional sort of married with children type of of lives so that's that's an interesting factor too and so you know these marginalized histories they're really delicate and they need this kind of attention and and the kind of attention that Pamela Bannis who is the researcher that I've been working with for the last two years and this is her project to be clear we're so thrilled to partner with her I mean Pamela is just an expert researcher I have never been so blown away by how thorough someone could possibly be. So we're learning a lot right now and we consistently see how much more we can uncover. And I know with my communication with various surviving family members, they're just so appreciative of this kind of attention. You know, I think that some people have been disparaging about us talking about Austin as a lesbian. Of course, she wouldn't have called herself a lesbian, but that is that is the term that we use today. And when the families visit the museum and they just see how, you know, much care is devoted to really exploring the importance of Austin's work, we've been receiving increased donations of other items that, really flesh out our archive and help us also understand more about Austin. Things like seashell collections, really beautiful tactile objects, parasols, uh, collections of lace, things like that. Like all of these items are really important to telling the whole story of Austin. And I think it's really interesting when you're asking about how this podcast will work. And I I know that Pamela Bennis will speak to it better than I, but Pamela's really tried to capture within these really fascinating, sometimes hilarious and moving letters that were sent to Alice, this bigger sense of, you know, who she was and and put voice to that. And I think it's going to be a wonderful roller coaster of a ride and a really fun way to explore this history. Uh, Well, we very much look forward to it. Victoria, thank you so much for telling us about Alice today. Thank you. 
The Alice Austin House Museum is open Tuesday to Saturday. For more information, visit its website, aliceaustin.org. The podcast, My Dear Alice, is out in the autumn. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. It's the Art Basel Art Fair this week, and as ever, its most eye-catching section is Unlimited, where works that can't be contained in standard art fair booths are shown. Our acting digital editor, Amy Dawson, spoke to Giovanni Carmine, curator of Unlimited, about Vices Built from 1994, a painting by the late Luxembourg-born artist, Michel Majerus. I'm here with the curator, Giovanni Carmine, and we're going to talk a little bit about the presentation and then a specific work. So tell us about this vast space and how you put this show together. Well, these are 18,000 square meters space, which are usually empty. And this year we have 70 monumental artworks, not only big dimensions, but artworks that big spaces to be understood and to be shown in the right way. Uh, We have 70 of these projects uh, in the Unlimited. The idea is just to present here pieces which doesn't fit the normal layout of the art fair. So pieces that need a lot of space or maybe noisy, time-based pieces. So it's a peculiar space inside the fair and uh, which maybe looks a little bit more like a museum than an art fair. Mm. It's always one of, I think, and from what I've heard, the favourite spaces to explore. And it's such a, not just vast in sense of floor space, but also incredibly high and we have incredibly tall works as well as, like you say, works that spread out across the space. How do you go about selecting these works? The selection is a process that is made by me together with the selection committee of the fair. And my work for the next edition in 2023 already started, so I'm uh, meeting in these days uh, galleries and artists to talk about possible projects for next year. So uh, it's a long discussion. Uh, This partner of uh, of the fair uh, decide if they want to apply or not they make proposals and then like in end of January more or less uh, we meet all together and we discuss about the pieces if they are uh, good enough basically or interesting enough to be uh, part of Unlimited and uh, yeah and I think uh, we are doing a pretty good job in choosing if I look at the quality of this year which is amazing obviously there are also many amazing projects that we couldn't uh, accept or we didn't choose for also for space reasons because, uh, yeah, it needs to be the right amount and the right mix of different uh, pieces to be uh, the unlimited as we know. It's not a group exhibition, it's not a, a thematic exhibition, but it's a show that tries to um, show the best in the best condition as possible and obviously uh, reveals also some topics which are very actual today or some artists which are relevant for the today discourse about art. It's fascinating to think when we're sat in this vast space that there are works that don't fit in here, but I can imagine. And it must be such a jigsaw to get them all their appropriate space. What can you tell me the difference between this year and last year, obviously last year Art Basel was still operating under COVID-restricted kind of conditions, whereas this year it feels very much back to normal, very few masks, except by some members of staff, and loads of people. So how do you feel the differences between this Unlimited compared to the last? We don't have to forget this Art Basel is not happening under normal condition anyway. The fact that uh, the last Unlimited was only nine months ago and not one year ago shows us that it's not an Unlimited happening or a fair happening under normal conditions. So uh, for my part of what I'm involved in the art fair, the big difference is mainly not only that you you see the face of the people, the mainly happy face of the people in front uh, (laughs) of the artworks again, which is very uh, pleasant and a much nicer experience than last year. But the logistic 
became a bit easier during the last nine months towards last year where the, the worldwide logistics was still very complicated and that influenced the look of Unlimited obviously because it was for the galleries and for the maybe uh, and for the fair too easier to show a certain kind of work than other work so uh, Unlimited in uh, 2021 was a really good addition I think but it was mirroring obviously the situation of the pandemic and this one this year uh, it's got back maybe to, to more um, sculptural works to more monumental works and uh, yeah of course everybody is happy that we are slowly going back to normality and let's talk about the work that you've picked to talk about this work by Michel Majerus. Can you describe it, first of all, for our listeners? Well, Michel Majerus' Weisses Bild, uh, which means white image or white painting, uh, is a very large painting um, composed in, um, let me count, 16 square panels. Uh, it's a 6 by 6 meters painting. I would describe it as a, as a pop art painting, so to say, to make it easy, representing very different kind of cartoonish elements. They are all around the painting, but they are also wished away by this white layer. And personally, I'm very fascinated by this artist since a very long time, and it's a piece done in 1993, which is like the moment just before internet came and somehow revolutionized our life and it's a kind of visual collage of pop culture if you want and that was typical major Ruth that was using also um, typography and uh, very um, different kind of techniques in his art and to me is is kind of a painting which represents very well the key historical moment where the analog world was about to be substituted or implemented through the digital world his works, he, he worked a lot in large scale, so this work is kind of symbolic of lots of his practice. He also liked to paint on unusual surfaces, like on the inside of a skating halfpipe or on really enormous canvases. What do you think it was that appealed to him about painting in such a large scale? Probably the appeal of every painter is not only by, from Marjorie's work, is always to, to push the technique on one side and also the, the, the limits of a medium. Michel Marjorie was, was a master in, in that. He unfortunately died very young. He died when he was 35 years old uh, in a plane accident. And uh, for my generation, I was born in the mid of the 70s, was a very, very important figure. I remember when I first saw his, his paintings that immediately struck me and uh, that's maybe also why I, uh, why I choose this, this painting that to me is a very important generational painting. It's also interesting to know that this painting was shown already in Basel in 96 when he had his uh, exhibition at the Kunsthalle Basel and uh, it's nice to see that uh, this kind of pieces they come back and they find uh, their way back to Basel. Art Basel continues until Sunday, the 19th of June. And that's it for this episode. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Amy Dawson, Henrietta Bentel and David Clack. And David's also the editor and sound designer. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, the two Martins, Bailey and Harrison, Sophie, Victoria, Amy and Giovanni. And thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.